So that's Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replies, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is God's word. Good evening. Uh, let me have my welcome. My name's Matt Fuller. If I've not met you, it's uh, uh, great to have you here. Yeah. Let's uh, pray and have a look at this uh, interesting little account that uh, Matthew's recorded for us. Our Father, there is no more important question than recognizing who is Jesus Christ? So please, uh, deepen our understanding of that tonight. For the first time, perhaps, would we recognize him as Messiah? For those who have known him many years, would we see him more clearly and therefore live appropriately in response to him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, now how strong is your faith? I wonder, is it strong enough to move a mountain? 
And if not, why not? Why not? I mean, the disciples had a problem, didn't they? The, the, uh, end of our, near the end of our reading, uh, verse 19, why couldn't we drive out this uh, demon? Uh, Jesus replied, you have little faith, but if you have mustard seed-like faith, well, you can move mountains. How strong is your faith? I guess is a question. Or you may come, uh, you may be here this evening in a slightly different place, thinking, um, I'm quite jealous of the faith of my friend here. I wish I had her faith or his faith. Yeah, that's a sort of comment you hear sometimes. I'm not sure they mean faith as sort of some sort of substance, but we could be in a very different place. You could hate the idea of faith, actually, and find yourself here, I don't know how. Um, you could be along with a sort of Richard Dawkins and mock the faith heads, uh, for burying their head in the sand, I don't know. But probably as we begin looking at this, I mean, faith is quite a big issue here. There's something wrong with their faith. What are we talking about? What is faith? Because lots of people would claim to have faith of some kind, but some of them are surprising. So uh, a, week or a week or so ago, ten days ago, uh, Ed Miliband declared himself uh, Labour Party leader as a man of faith which was a surprise, I don't know if you saw that in his speech. Not a religious faith, he said, but a faith nonetheless. A faith which has a duty to leave the world a better place. A faith which has a desire to tackle injustice. A belief in the power of collective action. Faith in a political creed. I mean, it's an interesting choice of words. I have faith in... It's a form of socialism, to achieve great things, to achieve a better world. That's a faith. He's a faith head. Just a different sort of faith, faith in the power of politics. Or um, I know some here uh, had the privilege of going to the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. Terrific. Uh, hugely enjoyable. But if you went, you'd have got a program which kind of explained what was going on, which would have helped. Um, brilliant though it was. So uh, here's just an extract of Danny Boyle, what he thought he was doing. We hope that, this is the end of it, it's quite a long thing, but we hope that through all the noise you'll glimpse a single golden thread of purpose, the idea of Jerusalem, of the better world, the world of real freedom and true equality, a world that can be built through the prosperity of industry, through the caring nation that built the welfare state, through the dream of universal communication. A belief that we can build Jerusalem and that it will be for everyone. That's interesting. I don't know, I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought the whole thing was hugely enjoyable. But what a creed. We can build a better world. How are you going to do it, Danny? What's your faith in? You faith head you. What are you going to put your faith in to do such a thing? We get them in the middle there. Through the prosperity of industry. That's how we'll build a better world. And of course, on the one hand, that's true. The, gener the wealth generated can achieve great things. Of course, industry can be corrupt as well. You'll still have your deep water rig disasters, which pollute a whole coast and cause billions of pounds worth of damage because there's a little bit of corruption, perhaps, or corner cutting in the boardroom, perhaps, perhaps. So might do good things, but I wouldn't want to pay, put my, all my faith in industry. Or through... Um, 
So industry, that's why you got all the, the, the rings being made, of course. Through the, the caring nation that built the welfare state, hence the children on the beds, uh, bouncing up and down. That's the point of that bit. Well, wonderful. I mean, that the, the welfare state is a terrific thing in many, many ways. Of course it is. What a, what a wonderful introduction to the UK. Of course, the people, all of us here, who sort of pay into it and take out of it, I mean, there is abuse. I mean, we know that. It's in the papers every week. At the bottom of the pile, the welfare scroungers. They just do nothing and just take money and really they should go to work and they, they have no aspirations but to take, take, take. At the top of the pile, the, the tax avoidance schemes paying 9% rather than what should be. I mean, if you're putting all your hope in the people who pay into the welfare state, you've got a bit of a problem there because at both ends of the spectrum and in between, people will live for themselves. It's a wonderful thing, but what your hope of a better world in it? Really? Or through the dream of universal uh, communication. Of course, that's why the, in the middle of all this pop music, the house opened up and there's Tim Berners-Lee looking slightly out of place, I had to say. Well, do you, look, I'm a brilliant mathematician, communications IT guy, and there's the Spice Girls, etc., dancing music around me. It's, it's a bit odd. Not his normal Friday night, I would doubt. Um, but why is he there? Because communication can change the world. And let's be honest, the internet has changed the world. It's a wonderful thing. Of course, a third of all traffic on the internet is pornography. So not a perfect thing. So what are you going to put your faith in to change the world? I mean, we're all faith heads in different ways. The issue is, what do you put your faith in? It's the object that matters. And you can have strong faith or weak faith, but the object is the key thing. You can have cast iron certainty that when you mount the broomstick, it'll get you from the UK across the Atlantic to the other side, to America. You can believe that passionately with all your heart. Or you could have very feeble, nervous, I hate getting on an aeroplane sort of faith, but you get on the aeroplane. You don't have much faith in them, but you just about manage to stumble up the steps. To be honest, weak faith in the plane is probably better than solid determined faith in the broomstick. One works, the other doesn't. The level of your faith, that's neither here nor there. The object, what are you trusting? That is what matters. See, we're all faith heads. But how do we expect to build the new Jerusalem, a better world, move mountains, the object of the faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's obviously the message of the Bible. It comes out clearly in our text tonight. Because you could trust in something else. Or you could try and remove Jesus Christ from the picture altogether. But there's a certain danger to that. I read um, uh, fairly recently a little bit about uh, Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn. You may have not. Uh, he's a, a Russian dissident in the middle of the 20th century. wrote lots about... Um, uh, um, Stalin's gulags and exposed what was going on there was uh, a novelist awarded Nobel Prize about 1970 something like that, uh, kicked out of the USSR unsurprisingly, at least he escaped uh, so he was a dissident, prominent writer, Nobel Prize winner not a Christian, I don't think he'd ever call himself a Christian but when he reflected uh, in the 80s uh, upon what had taken place he put it this way, he said, when I grew up as a child 50 years ago, 
I was told that the problems in this country in the Soviet Union was that man has forgotten God. After 50 years of research, here's what I conclude. If I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main causes of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to say, men have forgotten God. That's why this has happened. To the ill-considered hopes of the last two centuries which have reduced us to insignificance, brought us to the point of nuclear and non-nuclear death, we propose only a determined quest for the warm hand of God which we have so rashly and self-confidently, sorry, and self-confidently spurned. You just want to be careful before you put your faith in something else. Because to push Jesus Christ out of the picture altogether is a dangerous place to be. He would warn. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Have him as the object. A faith that moves and moves mountains. Okay, if you're joining us tonight, uh, we've uh, spent the last few weeks in Matthew's chapter 14 to 18. It's the fourth of five main teaching blocks in Matthew's gospel. We've called it the controversial Christ because Jesus has been causing division. He's firmly been rejected by now by the religious establishment. But uh, in the second half of this section, really chapter 16 to 18, he's building his new church. So we've seen in chapter 16, Peter has spoken and said, You're the Christ, aren't you? You're the promised king of the Old Testament, the one we were expecting who's going to rule over things and bring in uh, the new Jerusalem. You're the Christ, aren't you? Yes. In the second half of chapter 16, Jesus said, but I'm a suffering Christ. I will die. I will suffer many things, die, and rise again. You need to be clear what sort of Christ I am. So Peter speaks, Jesus speaks, and here really in chapter 17, God the Father speaks and says, listen, listen to him. Faith that moves mountains. Um, if you've got the sheets, I've completely changed what we're doing, or the passage, uh, but the outlines to so ignore that. Faith that moves mountains, two things. It listens to the sun, and it doesn't trust itself. Okay? Faith that moves mountains, two things. First, it listens to the sun, it doesn't trust itself. Let's take it in turn. First then, this uh, story of the transfiguration. A quick little uh, what Why, so what? What happens here? Chapter 17, verse 1. What happens? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay? There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. That doesn't happen every day. It's an unusual event in the life of Jesus. Then what's going on here? Well, if nothing else, the Old Testament background would show us that this is, this is Jesus revealing his glory. Moses, of course, goes up a mountain in the Old Testament, Exodus 34. Moses goes up the mountain, meets with God, and his face shines as he comes back down. So much so that all the Israelites say, cover yourself up, it's too bright, too bright, bright lights, can't see, it's too bright. Moses has a reflected glory, and therefore he has to put a veil around his face. What we have got here is not a reflected glory, but Jesus is revealing his glory. There's a sense in which Jesus is revealing himself inside out. You get what's inside, who he is. I don't know how many of you would have ever seen the the, uh, film of the 1980s, mid-1980s, a Ron Howard film, Cocoon. 
half of you weren't born, but don't worry about it. It's a great film. A great film, uh, along with E.T. It's there that, yeah, okay, some were. Um, uh, a great film. It's an E.T. with a sort of two great feel-good films. If you've never seen it, it's terrific. Watch it. You'll have a good time. Um, if you can find it. But it goes out on TV every now and again. Mid-80s. Cocoon. Cocoon is the story of benevolent aliens, uh, obviously. Um, coming, uh, coming to the U- uh, coming to America. They come to this planet, and they, they've got these cocoons. Some of their kind have been left in the ocean thousands of years earlier. They take them out. They put them in a swimming pool and fill it with this life force to bring these cocoons back to life. There's an OAP home next door. Some of them discover this. They go swimming in the pool, and it gives them sort of supernatural energy. You get these 70-year-olds breakdancing. It is the 1980s. Breakdancing and are doing all these crazy things. There's a couple of points in the film where the aliens reveal themselves. So the leader, I think, is a man called Walter. Uh, don't correct me on that. But the actor is Brian Dennehy, who plays him. And uh, there's this scene there on a boat, and uh, one of the guys says, come on, who are you? There's something extraordinary about you. Who are you? And uh, Brian Dennehy just gets his finger and uh, pulls back a little bit of skin around his eye. And the screen just sort of fills with this blinding light. And everyone goes, ah, ah, get to stop it, stop it, stop it. Because it's just so blindingly bright. And he just reveals a little hint of who he is. And it's extraordinary. And then later on, one of the female, I don't know how it works with aliens, I'm not an expert. One of the female aliens has fallen for a human, kind of. Steve Gutenberg uh, is the actor. And uh, so they're having this conversation. He says, now listen, on your planet... When a male and a female like one like one another, what do you do? I mean, on our planet, when a male and a female like one another, they they kiss on the lips. It's a twelve or something like that. They kiss on the lips, a bit like this. And um, and she says, "Well, that's okay, but on my planet, when a man and a woman, you know, want to share with one another, we reveal ourselves." Oh, really? The, the um, and, what he, what, and so they have this scene where she, again, pulls back and the light from within her sort of bursts out and hits him. And he's like, whoa, that's really good. You know, kissing, phew, revealing what's inside. Mm, that's really good. There's a sense in which Jesus is revealing what's inside him. I don't want to be irreverent about it. But there's just, there's an overwhelming, blinding glory to him. When he comes and, so when Jesus the Son came and dwelt upon this earth and became a man, his glory is veiled. And just these hints of glory revealed. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary what happens when his glory is revealed. So that's what's going on. Jesus is revealing his glory. What a contrast to what we've just heard. The one who must suffer, be killed, is absolutely glorious. Phenomenal. Okay, that's what's going on. Uh, why, why is it going on? It's going on for the sake of the disciples. Because they need to know he's uniquely glorious. So chapter 17, verse 2. He was transfigured before them. Uh, verse 3. Then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. This is not a sort of uh, reminder to Jesus who he is. This is for the benefit of the disciples. Jesus is revealing his unique glory for them. As is often the case, that Peter's the first to speak 
And uh, he's not on terrific form. Do you remember last week, uh, no, two weeks ago rather, uh, Peter was the first one to speak and Jesus interrupted him and said, get behind me, Satan, not so good. This week, Peter the first to speak and actually God the Father interrupts him this time. So Peter obviously can talk a bit and God um, keeps interrupting. But at this point, what's he talking about? Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, oh, it's good to be for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I'll just nip down to B&Q and knock up a few little buildings for you. Matthew doesn't tell us quite what's going on in, in Peter's head at this moment. But we are told that God the Father interrupts him. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So the father doesn't say, Peter, shh, you're in the presence of my son and Moses and Elijah. It's the lads. Enjoy their company. He says, this is my son. Him. Look at him. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. He's the one you're concerned about. Don't try and bring him down onto a level with Moses and Elijah. He is absolutely different. Listen to him. Now twice in Matthew's Gospel, in the Gospel accounts, the Synoptic Gospel accounts, God the Father speaks here and back at the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, Spirit comes upon him and God the Father says precisely the same words. This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. But here he adds, listen to him. Listen to him. Now the disciples rightly terrified, I guess. Verse 6, the disciples heard this. They fell down to the ground. They were terrified. Jesus is kind, considerate, comes, touches them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they look up, there's no one except Jesus because he's the only one that matters. What's going on? Jesus is revealing his glory. Why? So the disciples see his uniqueness. The uniqueness of his glory. Listen to him. Look, I know Moses and Elijah are there. The greatest um, prophet and the one who gave us the law. And Jesus is speaking to him. Because of course Jesus accords with the Old Testament. But, listen to him. He will be the one who interprets what's in the Old Testament for you. Listen to him. He's not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He's exalted. Don't build shelters for one, two, and three. Just for him. He is absolutely, utterly different. You need to listen to him. I remember what he just said. He's the suffering Christ. Listen to him when he tells you what sort of Messiah he's going to be. It's the point, I think, of verses 9 to 13. John the Baptist, he got it right. He pointed to a suffering Messiah. Listen to Jesus. Okay, so what's, what's going on? Jesus is being transfigured. Why? So the disciples see he's unique. So what? So what for us? Listen to him. That's the point. It's not complicated. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't put him on a level with anyone else. He's absolutely unique. Of course, someone will say, oh, you said about any religious leader, can't you? Of course. 
But every religious leader would say, of any cult or religion, God gave me messages. Christianity is the only one that says God came. He's unique. Listen to him. If you've been a Christian for years and years, don't raise up any other gurus, be obsessed with some sort of celebrity Christians or preachers. Listen to him. Him. He's the one that matters. One of the last um, occasions that uh, John Stott, the great preacher of uh, the 20th century in the UK, London, one of the last occasions he spoke was at the London Men's Convention. I forget which year it was. It was on the uniqueness of Christ. He concluded his talk that day with a magnificent quote. We may speak, if we will, of Alexander the Great and Charles the Great and Napoleon the Great, but never Jesus the Great. He's not great. He is Jesus the only. There is nobody like him. He has no peers. He has no rivals. He has no successes. So our place is on our faces, prostrate before him in humble adoration and praise. Listen to him. Someone know he died just over a year ago. And uh, at his funeral, uh, the man who spoke was his great friend, Tim Dudley Smith. And of course you get these eulogies about how great the man was. But uh, the lovely thing I enjoyed about it was right at the beginning. He said, I've sat down to write this talk. And in my head, I've just imagined John at my shoulder at every moment saying, less of me, more of him. Less of me, more of him. There's no one else like him. Don't be excited about anyone but him. He's glorious. Listen to him. Faith that moves mountains listens to the sun. That's what it does. Oh, and of course, that is how we're transformed in the Christian life. So as the Apostle Paul would put it in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. As we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, as we look upon him, he transforms us. As we behold his glory. So we need to dwell upon the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Listen to him, trust him. It's an obvious thing, but if you fix your eyes upon the sun in the summer, and there's a blue sky, if you fix your eyes on the sun, It'll transform you. You'll go a different shade. If this week you fix your ears on a certain piece of music, you hear it on the radio over and over again, it'll transform you. You'll recount it. You'll find yourself humming it. It'll change you. You'll just, that's the thing that obsesses you. If you fix your company with a certain group of people, no matter who it is, but if you're arriving in London or arriving at university and you fix your company with a certain group of people, they'll change you. Maybe aristocrats you fix yourself with, and then your conversation will become a little more refined and you'll drink champagne, etc. But it doesn't matter who it's with. If you fix your eyes upon something, it'll change you. Fix your ears, it'll change you. Fix your company with people, it'll change you. As you behold the glory of Jesus Christ, he will change you. Listen to him. Why are you listening to anything else or anyone else? If you want to change, if you want to move mountains, if you want the new Jerusalem, listen to him. Faith that moves mountains listens to the sun. Second thing, 
this incident. Uh, la, la, sorry, um, faith that moves mountains doesn't trust itself, verses 14 to 20. It doesn't trust itself. Now clearly this little incident, the healing of a boy with a demon, clearly there's a healing of a boy, but that is not the point. The point is the healing of the disciples' faith, because that's the problem. Just look down with me, um, that's what's going on. Uh, chapter 17, verse 16. I brought him to your, to your disciples, they could not heal him. Literally, they had not the power to heal him. Verse 19, why couldn't we drive it out? Why did we not have the power to drive it out? Uh, verse 20, end of verse 20, move from here to there, the mountain will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Literally, nothing will you lack the power to do. That's the point. We're not able, we're not able. If you do this, you are able. That's the point of this little story. That's why it's here. There's a problem with the faith of the disciples. They need to overcome that. What is the problem? Well, let's work through it. So you get this account. Uh, Jesus has gone up with the, uh, the three, uh, Peter, James, and John. So you've got the other nine um, down below. Verse 14. When Jesus and the three came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord... Have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your nine disciples, but they could not heal him. There's a problem. Now verse 17 seems quite strong from Jesus, doesn't it? Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Really, he's saying to all there, there is a problem with this world. This boy is symptomatic of it. This world is not a good place. There's all sorts of brokenness here. Bring the boy to me. Verse 18. Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of the boy. And he was healed from that moment. I don't know what the connection between those two things are. Jesus rebukes the demon and two things happen. The demon comes out and the boy is healed from his seizures or epilepsy. I don't know how those two are connected. But the New Testament always assumes that they are. That we are holistic creatures. It doesn't tell us any more than that. Now verse 19, here's the issue. Verse 19, the disciples want a review. Can we have just a review of what's taken place here? Because uh, we're a little uncertain about uh, why we got it so wrong. Can you help us out? So verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus in private. They'll look silly in front of everyone else. Um, why can't we drive them out? I mean, we've been doing this before. What went wrong? You probably don't remember when we, uh, it's about two years ago, we were back in chapter 10. Has it really been that long? It kind of has. Uh, chapter 10, just flick back chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus had given the disciples authority to do such a thing. He'd given them the ability. They should have been able to do this. So chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. So this is not a wacky thing they've been trying. They'd, if you read chapter 10, they've been doing that. Phenomenal. And so they say, hey, look, we, um, what went wrong? What went wrong? You know, we've, we've, um, we've lost our mojo. We can't, we can't do it anymore. What has gone wrong? Verse 20 is the crucial verse. 
he replied. You couldn't do it because you have so little faith. Wow. I mean, someone comes to you, they're an epileptic, and they're, uh, they're sort of displaying sort of ridiculous amounts of evil, they're sort of talking gibberish. You try to drive it out. I mean, that, that sounds like quite a lot of faith to me, doesn't it, to you? I mean, they've had a go. If that's little faith, what's going on? Verse 20, you can do it because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing is impossible for you. I don't know about you, but I read that and think, sorry, Jesus, you just need to repeat that to me. They couldn't perform this miracle because they had little faith. So what they need is faith as small as a mustard seed. That's a tiny thing. So the problem is little faith, and they need small faith. Is it really like that to you? I need to understand it. The word he uses for little faith, it's one word in the Greek. I'm a little bit nervous. The man who taught me Greek is here tonight. But it's one word. It's one word in the Greek. It's a technical word. It can mean little faith or poor faith. And I think that's the sense in which Jesus means it. If you compare the issue with um, the account in Mark's Gospel, he says this kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. The issue is their faith was poor because it was self-reliant. Jesus says, you have the tiniest bit of faith in me, you can move mountains. Your faith is poor. You're self-reliant. You think you've got mojo now. It doesn't work like that. It's no magic. I'm the one who does miracles. Faith in me. The object of your faith. Don't be self-reliant. That'll get you nowhere. That's the issue that's going on. Uh, many years ago, I was a school teacher. One of the schools, uh, I, I, half my stories begin like that, I know. Um, uh, I taught in a, a number of schools. When I taught in um, uh, one school in uh, Birmingham, it was what was described as a lively school, um, uh, which means it had CCTV in all the corridors. It had a 15% pass rate at GCSE, A to C. Uh, it was not a high-flying school. It was in special measures. The most possibly or certainly the second most depressing incident of my time there, was uh, one final assembly before the uh, the 16-year-olds went on study leave to do their GCSEs. And so this is the big inspirational assembly. And the head teacher said to them, I'm just going to play you something, and I want you to listen to this. And she played, Search for the Hero Inside Yourself by M. People. Do you remember that? Some do, some don't. Heather, small, in her prime. I mean, it's quite a nice tune. But let me, if you've forgotten, it's an early 90s classic. Let me just remind you of some of the lyrics. It opens, sometimes the river flows, but nothing breathes. A train arrives, but never leaves. It's a shame. But it's then that the faith arrives... To make you feel at least alive. Chorus, you've got to search for the hero inside yourself. Search for the secrets you hide. Search for the hero inside yourself. 
then you'll find the key to your life. I mean, golly, how depressing. That's it? That's what you've got to say to these guys? I was a nice tune, she got a nice voice. But that's it? Jesus doesn't say to these disciples, the problem was you just got to search within. You just need more faith. If you just sort of whip yourself up a little bit, you know, you know, a few slaps around the face, you'll get there. He doesn't say you need more of your sort of faith. He says, your faith is poor. You need faith in me. Faith in me. That is faith like a mustard seed. You can have the tiniest amount of faith in me. It can achieve extraordinary things. It can move mountains. The object is what matters. Wonderful, strong faith in a broomstick gets you nowhere. Tiny faith, fledgling faith, nervous faith in an aeroplane, that can get you across the world. The object is what matters. Your faith in me can move mountains. Question. Really? <laughs> what do you, okay, really? What do you make of the end of verse 20? Move from it. Nothing will be impossible for you. Well, of course, we can make two mistakes here. We can expect too much and expect too little. You can expect too much. Lord, I have faith in you. And when I get home, there will be a Mercedes-Benz outside my house. He's not talking about that. There is a context to Jesus' comments. God had promised to the disciples they could heal and perform miracles. And if they had faith in him, they could do such a thing. Don't expect too much. You pray and expect that God will provide you with a Mercedes-Benz. I think you'll probably be disappointed with that. You can expect too much. Of course, you can expect too little. The truth remains, God can do anything. He's God. Now again, I I think it's unlikely that it is is his good pleasure to provide you with a Mercedes-Benz. But he can do the extraordinary things. Read the scriptures. See the promises he makes. Pray them. He can do extraordinary things. Uh, a friend, uh, someone told me recently, they'd received a letter and um, from a, a missionary. And uh, the missionary in the letterhead had just three verses of scripture. Completely eclectic mix. Here's were the three. Joshua 10.13. The sun stood still. When they're praying and that they need more time to fight the battle that day, so God makes the sun stand still. Joshua ten thirteen, the sun stood still. Two Kings six verse six, the iron did float. God makes an axe head. Iron, they know the iron float. And Psalm forty eight fourteen, this is this God is our God. That's a very bizarre letterhead and strange mixture of scriptures. They wouldn't be my number three, top three that I would pick. The sun stood still. The iron did swim. This God is our God. So you can see what the guy is saying. I believe in a God who can do extraordinary things. And he can. He can do extraordinary things. Here I think the contrast is the poverty of the size of the seed. Tiny seed. You know your whole grain mustard you have at home? Pull out a seed if you desire. It's small. Mountain. Big. That's Jesus' point. Small faith in him can do big things. That is what he's saying. Do you believe that? This missionary guy did. Some stood still. The iron did float. That's our God. Extraordinary things. But where's the power to move mountains? Where's the power to build a new Jerusalem? The better world? 
everyone walking around the streets of London is a faith head. In something. It could be in secular progress, the power of industry, the strength of the welfare state. We're all faith heads. Who or what is the object of your faith? And here in Matthew's Gospel, the message is clear. Look to Jesus Christ. He is uniquely glorious. There is absolutely no one like him. Listen to him. Don't trust yourself. Trust in him. Because he says, just again as a reminder, the next few verses. Verse 22. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him on the third day. He'll be raised to life again. The one who is glorious would die for you. Trust in him. Look to him. He can move mountains. Can you trust in him? Let me leave us in prayer today. Our Father, there's some unusual things in this passage for us to get our head around. But at heart, it's very simple. There is no one like Jesus Christ. No one compares to him. And so we pray that we trust in him. That our prayers will be bold and expectant, knowing that you are a God who can do extraordinary things. And so faith in you can achieve the extraordinary. Would we trust in Jesus Christ and pray to him as a glorious God?